right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 19, John chapter 18. Well, if you found John that chapter 19, just go back one and you're right there because we're going to be near the end of the chapter anyway. There's a method to my madness. Don't ask me what it is. I don't have a clue. John chapter 18, notice verse 38. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I plead with you again today for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I do pray, Father, that you would give me clarity of thought and of speech to make the message plain to every heart. May the Spirit of God move upon us, challenge the lost to come to Jesus, for truly there is no fault in him. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for believers that will consider what our walk is like with the one in whom is no fault. Have your way in every life, and Lord, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, man has always had a problem being able to hold the truths that he's unwilling to move from. Uh, What I mean by that, it becomes very obvious, for instance, in the opinion polls that are out there. A person that may be riding high, the most popular person in the country one day, maybe in just a day or so, finally, that they are the scourge of the country and nobody wants anything to do with them. Man is so fickle. We see that even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, where one day they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And just six days later, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. Some of you weren't even alive back in 1991 when the United States went to war in Gulf War I in the matter where Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And our president at that time was President uh, George H.W. Bush. He was the first of the two Bushes to serve as president. In 1991, before the election, we find a year and a half before the election that he actually had an approval rating during Gulf War I of 93%, an unbelievably high approval rating of the people of the United States. And some of you may remember that the seven candidates for president with the Democratic Party were referred to by the news media at that time as the seven dwarfs because nobody figured that they would have any opportunity whatsoever to win. And yet, just a year and a half later, as the election came, this president that had had a 93% approval rating could only garner 38% of the vote. And one of those seven dwarfs did win. I'm not going to mention the name, but you can look it up. You can Google it when you get to the house, okay? Uh, But that was just a year and a half later. That same president ended up having one of the greatest scandals in the history of America. And it seems like presidents since then have been trying to outdo him. But uh, during that scandal, it was an amazing thing. They took polls and asked a number of questions about this president that had beaten George Bush in 1992. And, of course, it was, uh, it was a terrible scandal made the news media every day. In 1998, 
they asked three questions of the people. And 19%, that's not very many, 19% thought that that president going through that horrible scandal was an honorable man. That means over 80% did not think he was an honorable man. However, in that same poll, 62% of the people thought he was doing a good job. And then only 56%, though, wanted him to stay in office. But it was still over half, which was landside material, in spite of all the nonsense that they had gone through. What had happened was, with the problems with that president at that time, an independent counsel was picked out. His name was Kenneth Starr. And his report, when he got all done, was against the president. However... The Congress then, the Senate, voted him not guilty. So that was the story of the independent counsel. Well, I was thinking about that. I wonder how many independent counsels there have been on the federal level like that with those types of jobs. The first independent counsel in our nation's history goes all the way back to the 1880s, which means in the first hundred years there were no independent counsels. And from 1880 until 19, uh, let's see, 1920, there were five in 50 years, not very many. But from 1920 to 2023, there have been 43 in the last 100 years. And we find that that number is gradually picking up steam and there are more and more. You say, preacher, what are you saying? Well, it's simply this that you supposedly behind an independent council, it's supposed to be somebody who is politics free. Well, that never happens. You've heard me say you mix politics with science and you no longer have science. You mix politics with medicine and you no longer have medicine. And you mix politics with justice and you no longer have justice. That's the reality. And by the way, it's not new just to America. It goes all the way back to the fall of man. That's the way man is. You know, there are a lot of lost people that mock our witness of Jesus Christ. They will say things like this. Well, you're just so weak-minded. You need something to trust in in order to see it through life, and we can make it all on our own. In Jesus' day, there were leaders who hated Jesus. There were people who wanted to put him to death. They wanted him out of the way. After all, he had disrupted their temple twice. He had even called their religious leaders children of the devil. In John chapter 8 and verse 42, he slammed their traditions. Now, he never slammed the law. He always kept the law of God. He always obeyed the law of God. But the Jews had come up with a number of traditions which undid the law of God, and for that he slammed them. He had won, it seemed, at least the week before his death, he had won the popularity of the people. One day the whole Passover crowd is shouting Hosanna to the son of David, and then six days later, of course, they're shouting crucify him, crucify him. The Jewish religious leaders had brought Jesus before an independent council. This was not a person who had had any dealings with the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, this was a person who had very little interest in any of the Jewish spiritual things that were taking place in the land. As a matter of fact, he even wanted to please these people. 
that did not like Jesus Christ. He had already had some run-ins with them and some unfavorable comments had been made to the Caesar about him. And so he was hoping to appease these people that they might at least praise him back at the home office back at Rome. And so as he's putting Jesus on trial, when he comes back, he comes back with this statement at the end of verse 38. I find no fault in him, and I like this. You might underline those last two words, at all. Now, Pilate may not have liked the Jews, but his job did depend on whether or not he could keep that troubling area of the Roman Empire in check. And so he wanted to come across with something that would make them see him as being favorable to them. And yet it seems like everything that he would do would only turn against him. Even later, for instance, you get down to verse 12. It says in chapter 9, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou be this man, go, uh, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. There was no way he was going to win. Now, one of the things we've noticed in our day, of course, about independent councils, no matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, uh, whoever's being charged, the other side tries to discredit the very independent council that they had called for. And isn't it interesting that these people were trying to discredit Pilate now that they didn't get a favorable ruling. But I want you to notice, after examining Christ himself firsthand, talking to Jesus face to face, he had come to the conclusion, I find no fault in him at all. By the way, if some of you are looking for a political statement right now, it's not coming. So forget that. Not part of the message day. I'm talking about Jesus. And I'm talking about an independent council statement about him. And truly, Pilate was an independent council at this particular time. This is a statement of a false seeker. He was looking for something in Jesus that he could find fault about. And he says, I find no fault in him at all. If the Caesar could get a good report, little problems going on in the Jerusalem area, it could mean great advancement for him as he's looking for faults. And he couldn't find any. You can find faults with almost, well, with any man. I mean, after all, we don't have to go far. And the Bible lets us know we all have faults for sure. For the Bible says there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the Bible declares, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Yeah, man has a sin problem. If you look in the scripture in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, he tells us about the works of the flesh, which are these. And that list of works of the flesh are horrible. And yet we've all got the seed of that sin in us because of our sinful flesh. Thank God in Jesus Christ, there was no sin. But with Jesus, no fault at all. He heard the accusers Pilate did. He listened to Jesus talk. And he says, I find no fault in him at all. He was looking for fault and he couldn't find any fault whatsoever. To be sure, even later, Peter would say to the religious crowd that was there in Acts chapter 3 and verse 14, but ye denied 
the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Perfect, sinless. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, even the demons of hell had to acknowledge who he was and what he was. In Luke 4:34, the scripture says this of the demon speaking, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, there's a lot of people, of course, who speak against Christ. Because they don't want it to be true. They're hoping that it's not true. They don't want to believe that they actually face a judgment where they'll stand before the Holy One one day. But in all their, all their speeches and all their trying to crucify him over again with their words, they fail miserably. Anybody that would do an honest search of the scripture, I believe, would come out to at least this reality that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die for our sins, he did rise from the dead three days later, and he will save anyone who put their faith and trust in him. Here was a man looking for fault, and he could not find any fault at all. I'm reminded of Sir William Ramsey. I've got a set of his books that are interesting. This is back in the 1800s. He had come to the conclusion that the Bible had to be false, that Jesus could not be God. And he said he was going to do a study. He committed himself to a year's study where he was going to try to follow in Paul's footsteps in the book of Acts. He said there's no way that Paul could have accomplished the things that he did that are recorded in the book of Acts. After a year's study and trying to travel the very steps that, that Paul had traveled, he came to the conclusion that it had to be done exactly like Luke had recorded in the book of Acts. He became a believer and an apologist for the gospel of Christ. An apologist is someone who defends the faith. And he became a mighty defender of the faith. But we have a statement from a false seeker who couldn't find any faults with the Lord Jesus and I have to say, for all the multitudes of millions that have come to know Christ as Savior, they would say the same thing. I find no fault in him at all. Not only that, it was the statement of a firsthand witness. Let today's critics of Christ be silenced because Pilate was there. He saw him. He heard him. His testimony would stand up in any court. He personally had examined the accused. And he repeated his decision two more times. Over in chapter 19 and verse 4, it says, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. And then you go down to verse 6. When the chief priest therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He's a first-hand witness. He has seen him. He has talked to him. And he has come to the conclusion there is no fault in this man. He had heard the accusations. He had heard Jesus' words. And he declared of him, he is an innocent man. No fault at all. And even when he tried to free him, he could not do it. He ended up, according to the book of Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 27, he ended up washing his hands saying, I am innocent of this just 
man, innocent of his blood. His testimony agrees with Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he calls him the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us. In 1 Peter 1.18, he's called a lamb without spot and without blemish. Pilate examined the evidence. And he says, I find no fault in him at all. He's examined the evidence. He's examined the person. And he says, no fault at all. Some of you remember the name Jack Kevorkian. Now you hear the name Kevorkian and the thing you think of is not life, but death. Because he was, in a, he was a so-called doctor that when it was against the law to help people commit suicide, and it was against the law in most states, as it should have been, he made his name famous by helping people to kill themselves. And of course, the whole reason for this assisted suicide thing, another way of practical euthanasia, the reason for that was so that they could escape the pain and the agony that they were in. His lawyer said this of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus Christ is a bad joke. That lets you know where Kevorkian's coming from. And I want you to know that every one of those assistant suicides, they may have escaped their present pain and suffering in their body. But they woke up in a hell where there's a greater pain and greater suffering that would never end. The Bible says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. The Bible says of the rich man, Jesus was the one telling the story, and it came to pass the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And in hell there is no drug that can ease the pain for a little while. The truth is, helping people into the next life who are not prepared by knowing Jesus Christ as Savior only put them into a greater torment than they had ever experienced before, and it would be a torment that would never end. And Here's a man like that offering his opinion of Jesus Christ, whom he obviously never meant and called him a bad joke. You look at the evidence concerning Jesus and it abounds. I'm reminded of a preacher by the name of Philip Brooks who wrote this many, many years ago. Here was a man speaking of Jesus who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in an obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of those things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. 
He went through the mockery of a trial and he was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone. Today, he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon earth as powerfully but this one solitary life. Charles Bradlaugh was the outstanding atheist of his day in England. Meanwhile, there was a very famous preacher in England by the name of Hugh Price Hughes. Bradlaugh challenged Hughes to a debate on the validity of Christianity. And Hughes said, okay, then let me give you the terms. He said, I propose to you, Mr. Bradlaugh, that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of the men and women who've been redeemed from lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. He said, I'll bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. But he said, if you cannot bring 100 to match my 100, I'll be satisfied if you'll bring 50 men and women who will stand and testify that they've been lifted up from lives of sin and shame by the influence of your teachings. And he said, but if you can't bring 50, bring 20, who will say along with, as my 100 will say, that they have a great joy in life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. If you cannot bring 20, I'll be satisfied if you bring 10. And he said, if you cannot bring 10 then just bring one. Charles Bradlaugh withdrew his challenge. You see, the truth is, this firsthand knowledge of him, I can give you a witness in the difference of Jesus Christ that it's made in my life. I mean, after all, I was brought up in a drunkard's home. I was brought up in an immoral home. And I'll gladly compare the home of my daughter's with what I was brought up in. And the difference between the two homes is Jesus Christ. First-hand knowledge. I've known him now for 52 years. Hallelujah. Not only that, it was not only a statement by a fault finder and a statement of somebody with first-hand knowledge, but his statement here, I find no fault in him at all, is from one who himself rejected the faultless one. Now, what a statement. Pilate said, I find no fault in him at all. And then he doesn't receive him. Then he doesn't take him. And you wonder, what's wrong with this man? And yet, over the years, I've seen people that I've witnessed to, they seem to understand everything. They understand that they're a sinner in the sight of God. They understand that if they die as a sinner, they'll burn in hell for eternity. 
They say that they understand that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, came to earth to die on the cross and paid their sin debt and three days later rose up from the dead. They say they understand all that and they say they understand that if by faith they received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they would go to heaven. And then you say, well, you want to receive him right now? And they say, no. But this is the one in whom is no fault at all. But this is the one who loved you so much he went to the cross of Calvary to die for your sin, to give you eternal life, to give you a life in heaven instead of in hell where you deserve to go when you die. And yet so many don't take him. And Pilate didn't either. As a matter of fact, when he asked the Jews the question in Matthew 27, 22, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Oh, he knew who Jesus was. He had just met him. His wife, Pilate's wife, had suffered many things in a dream the night before. He feared this very special one, and yet still he did not receive him. He left life's greatest questions to others. He tried to be neutral, but neutrality doesn't work. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, he said, He that is not with us is against us. You say, well, I'm not going to make up my mind right now. No, you're making up your mind. You're making up your mind right now to stay outside of Christ. A heartbeat away from eternity, a heartbeat away from hell. When you know that Christ is your only hope, you're lost. And that he wants to save you. He wants to give you eternal life. And yet you say, not today. And we like to think that we're a smart people. We're not smart at all. Because too many times that decision is made exactly like that. In John 3, 18, Jesus said to Nicodemus, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he says, This is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You know, the verse I quoted it earlier, Romans 6, 23, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is a gift Offered by God. Now, we all have had, I'm assuming, all of us have had gifts given to us. Part of the definition of a gift, it has to be paid for by somebody else. I mean, if I buy it for myself, it's not a gift. It's just simply, simply something that I've purchased. And if you have to work for it, well, then you've earned it. Then, then it's wages. Eternal life is not wages. Eternal life is a gift. Paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary by the shedding of his own blood. For the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 declares, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. So he offers you eternal life. He offers you the forgiveness of sins. But you see, if you don't take it, if you don't receive it, then you don't have it. You go way back to the 1800s. There was a man by the name of George Wilson. He had been convicted and was sentenced to be hanged for a couple of different things. One for robbing the mail and the other was for murder. President Andrew Johnson pardoned him. And when the pardon was delivered to the prison, George Wilson refused the pardon. Well, that created a legal problem in the early days. Does he have to receive it in order for the pardon to be in effect or not? Chief Justice John Marshall gave this decision. A pardon is a paper, the value of which depends on the acceptance of the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but if it is refused, it is no pardon. You want the pardon that God offers you so that you can go to heaven when you die, you have to receive it. You say, where is this pardon, this gift of eternal life? Again, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son of God hath not life. No, if you want the pardon, then you have to receive what that pardon is in. That pardon is in Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Christ is the pardon for every man. And as Pilate said many years ago, I find no fault in him. Let me ask a question to those who've received the pardon. For those of you who are saved, you've trusted Christ as Savior. I just wonder what fault some Christians find in Jesus. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, what fault do they find in him that keeps them from being faithful to his church? The church is called the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The church is called the bride of Christ. It's called the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So I wonder what fault some people who have received him as their savior, what they have found in him that keeps them from being faithful to Jesus Christ by being in his church. The Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see that they're approaching. Or what fault some Christians find in him that even though they've taken Christ as Savior, maybe they did it for fire insurance, I don't know. But what fault have you found in him that keeps you from following him? Or that keeps you from serving him? Keeps you for, I mean, Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. When he saved me at the age of 22, when he saved me, I fell in love with him. And I just wanted to live for him. That just seemed a reasonable thing to do. Now, I had no intention at that point of being a preacher. When he called me, though, I didn't shun it. I said, okay, let's go. But I was already serving him, not in order to go to heaven. I had taken his free gift, and I wanted to please him. I found no fault in him at all. Well, but I know some Christians that aren't what they ought to be. Well, if you're using them as an excuse, you're not what you ought to be either. That's just a hypocrite calling other people hypocrites. And that's what it gets down to. Yeah, I don't know any Christian that's everything that they ought to be. But he's everything that he should be. And that never changes. And I can say with Pilate, I find no fault in him at all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Dear God, what a Savior. Thank you for the gift of your son at Calvary. Thank you, dear God, that you loved us so much. You had your son go to the cross to die for our sin, to be buried and raised three days later from the dead. Thank you for the marvelous promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Lord, take this message, make it plain to every heart. Those that are here in the auditorium, those that are listening over the Internet. And God, I pray for any who have not had that time when by faith they've taken Christ as their personal Savior, that even right now they would cry out in their heart to you, Dear God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you promised, dear God, you'd save them if they would do that by faith. Now, Lord, have your way in their lives and deal with Christians today. They say they're saved, but they're not living for you. They're not faithful to you. I can't imagine what fault they have found with you or with your son or with the wonderful salvation that we have, with the glorious promise of heaven. God made today they decide they're going to start living for the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name.